Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's not going to solve your problems, nature, but what it does is it puts your problems into perspective. It makes you realize you're, as I keep saying, you're no longer the lead role in your own personal melodrama, just a sort of bit part in this epic play that's happening all around you. Hello, it's Jimmy Doherty here, and welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. This is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. Now, I'm up at the far end of the farm today. Lovely, lovely day. Must be about, God, it's got to be about 20 degrees already. I've just come to check on the zebra. We've got three boys here. Hey, who are you looking at? I tell you what, they're so handsome. It does look a bit strange with these beautifully vivid striped animals on the hillside here. And when the train goes past, we've got the Norwich to London train. I don't know what the passengers think when they just zoom past and then see three zebra. But I've just come to check them because we're releasing three new animals into the same pen today. And they're three eland, which are one of the largest species of antelope. Our guys are only half grown at the moment, they're only young, but they're going to be massive, much bigger than a cow, huge things. But it's always a nervous time when you release animals because you don't know how they're going to get on. But they've eyeballed each other and it looks like a non-event actually. I think they're going to mingle really well, which is a weight off my mind. I mean, look at this. With this weather, these animals, I could be in Kruger National Park right now. So on today's episode, we've got a fantastic guest and his name is Charlie Corbett and he's written a fantastic book called 12 Birds to Save Your Life and it's a book about birds and bird spotting but not in a conventional way. Each chapter he deals with a different bird, tells the story of the bird but also what it sort of means to him and the importance of connecting with nature and the lovely thing about the book and also Charlie is that he's passionate about the great outdoors and nature and he really wants people to get out there and start bird spotting, go out there on nature walks. And his sort of remit is that you don't have to be an expert. You don't need all the kit. So I hope you enjoy this chat. I absolutely love talking to Charlie. He's a real clever guy. Hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you all back here later on by the zebra. Hopefully, they're still getting on really well. So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast on Jimmy's Farm. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, look, I want to talk to you about lots of things, mainly about birds. 
Now, you've written this fantastic book, and it's called 12 Birds to Save Your Life, Nature's Lessons in Happiness, which I think is one of the most fascinating titles of a bird book ever. So explain to me your relationship with nature first, how you really got entwined with nature, and and how it led you to write this book. Well, I suppose there's a story of how I became dislocated from nature and then reconnected to it. So I grew up on a little farm and, you know, I probably knew, you know, I knew what you knew when you grew up in the country, I suppose. And and I did have, like we all do when we start off in life, I think we have a much closer relationship to nature. And I think as we go through life, we shake this off for whatever reason it is. We grow up, we leave home. For me, it was going to live in the city. I then lived abroad, overseas for two or three years. And I remember coming back Uh, getting back to the village where I grew up and walking down the lane and thinking, you know, not just the birds, I've absolutely no idea what is going on in this hedgerow. I don't know if it's a hawthorn or a blackthorn or, or, you know, didn't know the difference between a sparrow and a starling. And I kind of thought, this isn't right. And so that's how it all started, really, for me, was trying to sort of learn, well, reconnect again, I suppose, with what I saw I'd forgotten and I'd become a dislocated human. See, Charlie, it's really interesting what you've said there, because it's something I battle with, is that the fact that somehow the connection with nature, fascination with wildlife and all that kind of stuff, we just drop it when we begin to sort of go into our teens and in our adult life. We do see it as a part of our adolescence. Why is that? Why do we have this sort of instant thing with, well, actually, put all that away, that's for childhood. I suppose the idea of building camps and dams in the river, but the connection with nature, somehow you drop all that silliness. I suppose it's like our parents in a way too. You know, I see nature, sometimes we see it as this as old fading wallpaper that we've stopped noticing anymore, but it's always there, you know, and it's like you go out into the real world. At the moment, you know, you think, I don't need this. I'm young, you know, adolescent or in your 20s. I'm, I'm off to conquer the world. We all kind of have this nature that the Victorians imbued in us. I think that we conquer nature, you know, and we've conquered that. We don't need it anymore. And I think that's bad for us because I think it, we'll talk about later, I'm sure, it's bad for our mental health and our attachment to our surroundings. And it's bad for nature because we don't notice that all the sparrows are disappearing and we don't notice that you can't hear a song thrush singing anymore. So I think partly it is part of growing up trying to shed this. And, and many of us, I think, in middle age find that we're slightly lost souls and we can't put our finger on it. And then, you know, bad things start to happen in your middle age. You know, people start dying, you know, and pressures go up. You know, life starts chucking stuff at us and it's really hard to cope. And I think our ancestors who had a close relationship to nature um, were better able to cope in the same way I think maybe children are. You know, they have a fascination and inquisitiveness that I think that I'd certainly lost. The other thing, of course, is that whenever I tell someone that I'm interested in birds or I I like the birds, they immediately put me in the same category as a train spotter. You know, they think I'm a twitcher or something. And, you know, I can see this sort of glaze go across their eyes and they think, oh, God, let's just change the subject. He's going to bore me about birds. And it's like, no, I'm not. You know, I'm a human being. And so, you know, why we feel such shame about knowing that moving with the rhythms of the seasons, knowing that that's a chiff chaff that's just arrived from Africa and singing in March and the cuckoo's coming next week. You know, why is that nerdy? (laughs) We do equate that. You know, when people think, oh, I'm into like, as a teen, I was, and still am, massively into entomology and collecting various different insects and having collections. And, and I was always seen as that odd one, you know, and I could show you some amazing photos. But it is crazy, the divorce w- that happens between us and nature as we grow is crazy because nature is our life support system. The natural world is our life support system. Somehow that we put it aside, 
is crazy, not only in terms of our very sustenance, the air we breathe, the food we eat, but also in terms of our mental well-being. As soon as we divorce ourselves from this natural system, you know, it's like ripping out the umbilical cord. It's crazy. You, it's insane. It's utterly insane. I don't know why we do it. You know, because we are, we forget that we're actually of this planet and not merely just in it, looking at the pictures. You know, we have a deep relationship to nature that we don't understand fully. We are in the coming of spring now. The birds have started singing. There's a song thrush outside my window where I'm staying at the moment every morning, just giving me such joy. The chiff chaffs have arrived, as I say, from Africa, you know. And this is doing stuff to us that we don't know what it's doing. You know, we don't understand what it's doing. The sap is on the rise. You know, poets have been going on about this for centuries upon centuries. You know, our species, you know, always imagine, you know, Neanderthal people or Neolithic man, you know, sitting around their fires or the spring coming and they're having the same feelings that we are feeling now but we've kind of discarded and we think it's actually, you know, we put our faith in electronic devices now and social media too much, you know, where actually if we just turn that phone off and walk down the lane and listen, you know, we no longer listen. We hear stuff, we don't listen, we see stuff, we don't watch. My point of my book was you don't have to go out with binoculars and a special book to mark up rare species. My point is you just have to sit in your garden or a park or anywhere and watch and wait and nature will find you. You know, that robin will sit on the bench or a song thrush will sing in the tree behind you, you know, and and for the first time in years, you're actually listening and watching and letting nature do this thing, do its thing. Yeah, it's so true. And also when you reconnect with nature, you suddenly find your place you know it doesn't matter what your background is or whatever it is you suddenly find your place in nature and you talked about neolithic man there and whenever i sit round a campfire and the logs are burning and you see those embers rising up into the sky that's exactly what my ancestors would have looked at that very spectacle of them whizzing up in the air those little embers glowing and it's that's instant reconnection i love that I mean, it's the same. So when I hear, let's say it's one of those brutally cold, or even like today's pretty cold, March days, you know, it's drizzle and the daffodils are out, you know, the nature, it wants it to be spring, but it's still not feeling very much like spring and there's snow falling and and you're desperate for the season to change. And then the dear old chiff chaff will sing. And now the chiff chaff, you know, and I always sit there thinking, you know, this feeling I'm having when I hear the first chiff chaff that everyone else ignores or doesn't notice is the same feeling of hope that it gave people 10, 20, 30,000 years ago, you know, that things are going to get better, things are changing, and that, you know, all nature is a metaphor as well. And then I think about the chiff chaff, and I think it weighs less than an ounce, and it's flown from Africa over deserts and seas and mountains, and you just think, how is that even possible, this tiny little brown bird, you know? Incredible, incredible. But Charlie, you talk as someone, that it sounds like, that as studied ornithology in the natural world all his life through university and and whatever else but that isn't the case is it you grew up in a farm but you went off into a completely different path tell us a bit about your journey before you reconnected with nature and before you wrote this book so yeah I grew up on a farm and then I went off up to university and studied history because my book is also about my family as well, which I come on to. Is, and I studied history. My father said, what are you going to be, a bloody librarian? You know, <laughs> come from that sort of background. <laughs> and then I went and got a job in London like we do. And then I lived abroad and I travelled around Africa with my work because I was a journalist. And as I say, I got back and first of all realised, as I said before, that I'd forgotten all this stuff that I kind of half knew anyway. 
and took it upon myself. I, yeah, I've had no professional guidance just to learn. I went out with the guidebooks, you know, and part of the reason I wrote the book was because it was such a nightmare. You see a little brown bird in the middle of a field and it makes a funny noise and you think, I can't just run home and look that up in a book. That's impossible. So what I wanted to do was, what I needed then was context. I needed people to say, if you're in an open field in British farmland, you're going to hear a skylark sing. You know, you'll probably see some yellow hammers. You know, you'll see a hare run across. You know, that's what I'm likely to see in a field. If I'm in my garden, I'll see a robin and I'll hear some green finches churring in the background and blue tits and coal tits and those sorts of things. So I wanted to give people context. So that was to make it easier for people to reconnect. But also, obviously, I wanted to make it relatable to human life, so to our everyday lives, and not nerdy or scientific, and not taking it out of the binoculars and satchel and special book. You know, not there's anything wrong with that, but that's what puts people off. You know, they feel there's this burden of knowledge that they need, or they'll be put to shame by somebody who knows more than them. And it's not what it's about for me. It's about saying, here I am in my garden, and now I know what that is, and now I can wait for it to come back, or, you know, and for me, the book came together, really, because I've been learning all this. And then the book actually is about a bit of a human tragedy, really. I mean, it's an upbeat book, but it's about 12 birds over 12 months of my life. You know, my mother, who was fit and healthy and had never been ill in her life, you know, in her 60s, suddenly she got a brain tumour and was dead in six months. And it, And the book is a bit about what that did to my family, how the rug was pulled from our feet, how we coped as a family, how our relationships became strained, my father fell apart, you know, all these human, natural human things that happened to us, the unexpected events that bash and smash their way into our lives without permission, and how this rekindled love that I was going through of nature kind of really, really helped me through in in ways that I never, ever realised. I mean, I thought I was just relearning about nature. But when you lie in a field and look up and hear a skylark sing, there is something that that cascading, joyous noise, you know, that, as I say, it's not going to solve your problems, nature. But what it does is it puts your problems into perspective. It makes you realise you're, as I keep saying, you're no longer the lead role in your own personal melodrama, just a sort of bit part in this epic play that's happening all around you. It's interesting because the solace you do get out of nature when it comes to grief, I think, is really quite interesting because my dad, he died nearly three years ago of melothesioma, which was a terrible condition from asbestos. And he had 18 months to live. And watching someone go through that process, and then my mother-in-law, she passed away about a year and a half ago. But having nature, I know that my dad and I didn't really converse that much in terms of how you felt your feelings it wasn't really that kind of relationship but with my mother-in-law nature was really important and she would sit and look out the window and, and write poetry and nature was really comforting but I think getting over grief particularly my father having watching nature around you watching stuff grow and watching the passing of seasons you know it's going to be all right that tomorrow's another day life goes on and you do feel part of a cycle there's something really healing about nature when it comes to grief. Did you find that? Totally. And in a way, it's like that rather beautiful poem, you stop all the clocks, you know, and you think when this has happened to you, that give the dog a juicy bone and all that, you know, the world needs to stop. But there's a helplessness at first because it doesn't stop. The song thrush still sings at four in the morning on that dark morning, you know, it still carries on. And there's a reassurance as well it's weird, it's all wrapped up, you know, but nothing that you can do or say is going to stop the sun from rising. And so you may as well just put one foot in front of the other and get on. And nature doesn't know that you're having this crisis, you know, and nature doesn't answer back. It's just a robin that comes and sits next to you, or it's 
as I say, a blackbird singing in the hedge on a whole February afternoon, you know, just when they haven't sung for since July. It's moving with the rhythms of the seasons. That's why I really believe our ancestors were better able to cope with death and change than we are now, because we have dislocated ourselves as a species from, as we've just been saying, you know, from our natural environment. And I can watch my friends, I can watch so many people just walking down a lane, even my darling wife with their headphones in, and while it takes me 20 minutes to walk down that lane because I've seen a nest or I've seen something or there's something's popped up in a hedge somewhere else, they can whiz down that lane and not notice anything that's gone on. Because walks for me used to be a means to an end, A to B, get to the pub, walk the dog. Or even a walk around my garden, I can say there is a missile thrush making a nest in the tree outside my bedroom window. It is a source of such joy to me. And I watch her, I watch both of them. The missile thrush is a bit like a big muscular version of a thrush blasting out this song every morning. She's building the nest. And again, as you say, when you're watching that, you are totally distracted. Nothing else matters when you're watching nature. And all your problems, they recede into the background. Sure, they come back again. You know, sure, I'll get back home. The kids are screaming. I have a row with my wife. Work's a nightmare. How am I going to pay the mortgage? But actually, for those moments, I've been given the solace. And again, it's the same with illness. It's the same with grief. It takes you away and at the same time gives you that perspective that life goes on. Absolutely. And it's all-encompassing and it's often awe-inspiring. And the other day, we had fairly strong winds again and this big old oak fell across the drive and smashed all my fence down and I got a local guide come out and help me with chainsaws cut your way and it was all lots of swearing and sawdust everywhere and frantic must clear all this wood out the way and then all of a sudden I unearthed a baby grass snake that hadn't really emerged ready for spring yet and it was still cold but everything stopped the chainsaws stopped the tractor stopped everyone puts down their tools and we all gather around to look at this amazing little baby grass snake and we just watch it move around my hand for a bit and then we put it back into the ground and it found its way back into a little hidey hole. But that moment of nature cuts across everything, all our frantic nonsense that goes on. But it's really important because it totally distracts you from everything. You do switch off from all the chaos in our life and we're bombarded with so much information and all the rest of it. But being able to just release all your worries and I look in the pond and watch the fish or if you walk through a woodland and you start to hear the community of birds and what they're doing you become connected with that natural system and you lose all the angst of the modern world all of a sudden. Yeah you do and yet you know what's so funny about you saying that is talk about the grass snake you know the power of that connection had just for those moments and then you talk about it and you can just picture people you say about me how's Charlie oh I he's just staring at the birds again you know like some loony (laughs) but it's mocked you know yeah yeah I am unashamed and I will go up onto the hill often take a beer with me and on a spring afternoon and I will just lie on the hill I was so lucky to live in the Pusey Vale where we've got so much bird life up there especially the skylarks and linnets and corn buntings even tree sparrows And I can lie and wait and watch and the bumblebees come over and the butterflies start arriving. And I'm just sitting there with my beer on my own. And there is nowhere else in the world at that moment that I would rather be. And there are so few times in my life where I get to feel that. Any of us get to feel that. And we have it all around us. People say, oh, well, only in the countryside. Not at all. You can go to a London park. You can go to any park in any town and have that same feeling of connection. And who cares if someone sees you hugging a tree, to be quite frank? I love the smell of an oak. Yeah, I love a good old hug with an oak, maybe a beech. But Hazel, they're just up themselves. <laughs> a beech tree. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bloody hawthorn either. <laughs> Not hawthorn, get it. 
thing is, is that reconnecting is really important. We've seen that with the pandemic, where people wanted to reconnect with nature. It's healing powers. And also it gives you a bit of certainty, you know, a bit of relief in a chaotic world, which is really important. And I love what you said about you don't have to be an expert to get involved. I mean, the idea of like, if you want to go bird watching, it doesn't mean you're going to have to dress like Bill Oddie, or not saying that Bill Oddie dresses badly, but you don't have to become that archetypal twitcher or an entomologist or whatever, or you don't need volumes of knowledge. You know, you don't have to, because the idea of not knowing everything and, and somebody putting you down because you've incorrectly identified something is crazy. But your book is really important because it gives people the emphasis to go, I want to get involved, I want to reconnect. So tell me about the book. You've got 12 birds. How did you choose these 12 birds? I started actually with this 12-month period of my life and I thought back and it was a while ago now and digging up the past a bit, a difficult time in my life. And I thought about each bird, it's 12-month period. So what I wanted to do was talk about this 12-month period of my life of mum's illness, death and then the aftermath but also go through the birds as they help me directly, but also it's a guide. So, for example, the chapter one is a skylark, my ultimate inspiration, where in the midst of all the nightmare of mum's diagnosis and, you know, the rug being pulled from my feet, that lying in a field, it was a pretty damp day in August, hearing a skylark, you know, hovering, you know, hover above your head, 70 feet above, just spraying out this cascade of happy, joyful notes. And this sort of injection of neat hope to the soul, you know, and that's a moment of connection that you never forget. And I will never forget that walk. And then looking around you and realising how much you've forgotten. So while that chapter is about that part of my personal story, it's also about, OK, you've seen a skylight. Well, I tell you what I also saw that day. I saw a hare gliding across the landscape. There were yellow hammers coming through, you know, bustling along the hedgerows. And these, I said, this is the context you need of the kind of birds you'll see in an open field or a lapwing. And then a bit of history of the lapwing, the culture, you know, lapwings, which actually are pretty red-listed now. You don't get so many. But the collective nouns, I love collective nouns. They're so beautiful. A collective noun for a lapwing is a deceit of lapwings because when they nest, it's called a deceit of lapwings because when they nest, the female lapwing will pretend to be injured near her nest to attract predators towards her. And then the other lapwings will bombard that predator and keep them away from the nest. So they're called deceit of lapwings. Or you have a charm of goldfinches, a murmuration of starlings, you know, these beautiful names or a bellowing of bullfinches. You know, whoever thought these up, they were genius. So that's the first chapter. So then the next chapter's a robin in a hospital car park, you know, followed me about. But then what else are you going to see around the robin? As I said before, blue tits and great tits and all the birds that you'll find around your garden feeder. And then I wanted to talk about the migratory birds so the chiff chaff which I keep going on about some reason it's so many because it's just singing outside my window all day and house martins are about to arrive now so that was another bird so I could talk about swallows and house martins and swifts so each bird's a gateway to other similar birds or there'll be context but within the story of my kind of my undoing in a way um with this unexpected event and the undoing of my family and how we as a family came together and tried to knit each other back together again of course we're not you never really can knit yourself back together in the same way but how nature played its part in making that journey so much easier and lifting me at some of my lowest lowest moments just the contemplation of nature and even all the poetry around nature every chapter has a poem at the start which relates directly to my feeling and also to nature as well so and it's a story of you my relationship my father as well my father like you were saying is so old both my parents came from the never explained 
never complain school of hard knocks, which is you don't talk about this stuff. And I remember my editor at the beginning, I said, you know, they kept saying you're hiding behind metaphors. I said, you know, the problem is I come from a background we don't open up. We don't talk about this sort of stuff. The only emotion we ever show is sort of laughter or anger in our family. And so they said, well, just write that. That really, weirdly, just saying that was okay. It kind of gave me permission. I used to lock myself away in a little bedroom and I'd leave all the ghosts outside of all those people looking over my shoulder saying, you shouldn't open up about this. I'd shut them out and I would write with freedom and happy abandon. Because it's hard, especially as a man, opening up about this stuff. It is. Although nature is massively healing, particularly talking about your story with dealing with grief and how nature's helped sort of knit you back together. But nature in a way also is a place you can go and hide as well from problems. And I found that as a young man, I found that if I had issues I couldn't deal with, I could always run off to the natural world. Because my family weren't really into all the animals and the plants and all this kind of stuff, it was my little secret world. I had a little door into it. I could run off into the meadow and catch crickets and stuff and and no one else could get you kind of thing. So there is that element to it. It's a wonderful book because it's a story of how nature is part of our lives and very, very important. But I love the birds along the journey as well. And you talk about the robin. There's something really special about a robin. I don't know what it is. Everyone just thinks of it as Christmas, Christmas cards. Of course, the robin is with us all year round. They're one of the stickers, aren't they? They don't care how bad it gets, they're going to be here. But I love it because if you're gardening, they'll just turn up and they'll hop around and look for worms that you've unearthed. But there's a lovely relationship we have, a sort of a symbiotic relationship. Now, I imagine early man, when they'll be out foraging, the robin would be there in case you know they turn over a log and they could eat some of the quarry thereafter, whatever, beetle larvae or whatever it is. And that relationship has stayed, hasn't it? That sort of symbiotic relationship, I suppose, the robin following humans. But I always think of them as like little souls that have come along to say hello, you know, this friendly hand of nature. What's amazing is, it's so funny, so when I was writing the book and telling people about it, you know, everyone would say... Oh, I don't know anything about birds. Oh, or, you know, as I say, look at me and they go, okay, he's a twitcher. But they would always say, oh, except for the robin. There's a robin that comes in the shed and I'm sure, and you know, they'd say, that's my dead mother. Everyone had a robin story and we all do, and I love them. And then some people do that, you know, the classic is, oh, but they're very aggressive. They'll kill it. You know, they're very, very fiercely competitive and aggressive and great. So what? You know, and I love that. And yeah, and actually most of the time you're not, so you think it's the same robin, you're not seeing the same robin. <laughs> the other reason we see them, a lot it's because they're one of the only birds that sing right through winter so they're always singing all through winter and both the males and females the cock and hen robin both have red breasts so you really notice them more than other birds but robins are absolutely i mean there's one hopping around in the garden looking out the window now just hopping about it's just lovely to, to have them there i love them i tell my kids that the robin is santa's little spy and that the robin watches you and listens to you to see if you've been naughty or good throughout the year. And so they're quite petrified of the robin. So when the robin turns up, and I've got four kids, if a robin turns up, they're like, oh, hang on a minute, robin's here. No no swearing, no arguing. <laughs> you've got to be good. I'm going to steal that off you. I'm going to be using that <laughs> next Christmas. It works a charm. It works a charm. <laughs> so tell me, but if people wanted to get into birds and they want to go out and listen to inspirational bird songs, where can people do that? I mean, I live in the countryside, you live in the countryside, and there's lots more birds. But people live in towns and cities. Where can we all go out and actually engage with nature? First of all, you can engage with it, plenty of nature on every city street. 
Provided you've got trees and some bushes around. And the tragedy is we've lost all our sparrows and built up areas because there used to be great clouds of sparrows everywhere on every town in the UK, certainly. And if you go back to, if you go to France, you know, they're still there. I don't know why they've left our towns and cities. People don't really know. But I would say any street you'll see a robin, any street you'll see blue tits and goldfinches, lots of goldfinches in the towns now. They're a big success story. But every town will have a green space where you can sit and watch and wait. And my advice is anytime you can do this, Probably the best time always, unfortunately, to see nature is early in the morning. So if you go to the park in the morning, hopefully there'll be a song thrush singing in there in the morning. This time, yes, certainly. And blackbirds will be singing. So any green space, really, you know. But the thing is, birds love being around us. And while we've treated nature with utter disdain, really, since, you know, we've luckily got over this idea we have to conquer nature. You know, we we're always conquering nature in the old days, weren't we? Conquering Everest or making dams to conquer rivers and all this. And now we've sort of learned as a species that we've, to misquote Shakespeare, you've sort of slightly made a shameful conquest of ourselves because we look around and it's all disappearing. And as you said, you know, it's our umbilical cord. So you can find nature absolutely anywhere. And if you do get a chance to be in the country, you know, go out into the fields, go for these long walks and don't just walk, just sit and watch and wait and see what comes to you. And that's the best advice I'd give. And don't be intimidated by a lack of knowledge. It's fun to learn. There's apps and all sorts of things to help you these days. And nature's so much more than that because it's such a part of our cultural folklore. Every bird has a story. That's what I also try and say in the book, you know, from our ancestors. Every bird, not just the robin, you know, every bird has a, you know, the old names our ancestors had for birds were beautiful. And um, I use a lot of those in the books. I found these old bird books from the 1850s or 60s, always written by vicars. And, you know, some of these lovely old names, you know, the butcher bird or the bullfinch was called the blood elf. They were far more descriptive, rather like their collective nouns. They made nature feel like part of us, you know, whereas what we do is we make it scientific. What we do is we say all the lower mandible of the common sparrow, you know, I don't care you know is um males turn them into characters <laughs> don't you? you see those names give them real character planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. But uh, I think what you said was really important, the idea of if you're sitting and you're just quiet, nature will find you. That's the thing. I mean, we live in a world where you push a button and it's immediate gratification. You know, get your phone, do this, something happens immediately. But there's something to be said to having to sit and wait and nature slowly comes to you and all of a sudden then you'll see it all around you and the more you look, the more you see. I remember once as a kid, we lived in a village called Clavering. There's an old Mott and Bailey castle and the remnants of a moat and a fallen down old tree. And we were talking about, oh, there's a kingfisher. I'm sure there's a kingfisher. We could hear a kingfisher. Every now and then, that really high sort of peeping whistle, that beep, 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 you know. And then I never saw the thing. And one day I was on my own and I had a little flask of tea. You know those flasks that when you smash, that you can hear all the glass inside, those horrible things when you smash a flask. I had a flask of tea and it was starting to rain. I thought, I'm never going to see a kingfisher. And it had been a week or two. And, I thought, oh. and then all of a sudden I heard that high pitch, beep, beep, beep. And then this amazing, just a blue streak whizzed past my eyes and then stopped and then it looked around for a bit and then went again I didn't see it ever again but it was that moment where I was like oh my lord I can't believe it it's never left me and you're talking about it 40 years later yeah completely yeah it never leaves you you know I can tell you it makes my day I walk down our Kennet and Avon Canal near us you know and it makes my day when I see it and I'm just always on the eye out for that kingfisher and you say that flash of electric blue and orange bang, it's gone, but it lives with you for so long. And it gives you this excitement and calm as well. There's a calmness because they're totally silent, especially when they're fishing. I don't know if it's true, but the bullet train, I put it in the book, so it must be true. The Japanese bullet trains, they design them on the beak of the kingfisher because the kingfisher makes no noise, no splash at all when it dives into fish, it makes no sound. You know, and it's just little miracles, everyday miracles that you miss out on when you don't tune in. And when you tune in, you can see these miracles. You don't need to go to the Galapagos. You don't need to go to Costa Rica. You can see miracles in your garden. When you tune in, you see where they're nesting and your kingfisher, which is, as you say. That is so true. I'd like to say I'm like the kingfisher when I dive into water and make no splash. But I tell you what, I'm not. I'm more like a... I'm more like a humpback whale that... Yeah, I'm a hippo. I'm in the hippo category. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny, you know, whatever life throws at us and going through life's ups and downs and, like you say, going through grief, having nature there, it's funny. It's like an old friend that's never left you and is always willing to put out a hand to help, I think, is the way I view it. And welcome you back when you've ignored that old friend for 20 years says, don't worry, and you just cake off where you left off. But it's a brilliant analogy, yeah. Reconnecting is so important, and it's so important for the environment and understanding how the world works and our importance, but also for our mental health, you know, to try to divorce ourselves from the natural world. It seems so crazy, doesn't it? When you look at people's busy lives and rushing around, and you think, God, you've got to take time to reconnect. It's so important. You have to, because... This is only in the last two generations, really, that your industrialization, wherever you want to start it, that we've completely changed the way we live our lives. 
there were spaces in people's days, in our ancestors' days, they understood the rhythms of the season because the rhythms of the season mattered. In winter, you went hungry and you only ate the food that you could grow in winter. And, you know, so the seasons had real meaning and that bird arriving in spring and signalling the start of spring and the start of plenty again was really important. And the swallows leaving in the autumn and the house martyrs leaving the one, there was a, you know, a deep sadness, but a joy in the thought of their return, you know, really complicated emotions, you know, and all those noises and the sounds at different times of the year let off signals in our body that we don't know about. And as you say, it's a tragedy that almost willfully we've dislocated this ourselves from nature and then prevented us ourselves from sort of getting back into it by making it feel nerdy and scientific and putting up a barrier to it almost a sort of sense of shame you know which is so bonkers i just think our ancestors were better able to cope yeah we could all take a leaf out of their books and these phones yeah it's crazy isn't it i mean a technology is extremely useful and it's there's so many upsides to it but we shouldn't forget the very basics in life and the cycles of nature and that we still belong to those cycles as I said before, we've forgotten that we're of nature. We see ourselves as distinct from it, as rather like an alien's dropped us on this planet and we're just mooching about looking around. No, we are completely tied into it and into the moods. Everything is tied into the movement of the sun, our movement around the sun. I suffer from a kind of unexplained melancholy every so often. You know, you can't really explain it. You're just sad today. And we want to want a reason of why. Maybe just because... That's part of our evolutionary makeup. And the reassurance of knowing that is better. But all the farmers I know, A, they tend to be surrounded by animals, but B, they're plugged into the seasons and they're busy. There's always something to be fixed. You don't have time as farm to sort of to reflect too much. I'm going to say, I said to my uncle the other day, I made the mistake of saying to my uncle the other, who's a Scottish hill farmer, what's on for the next few months? And then he just went, well, we got the lambing, and then we got this, and then we got that, and then we got those. <laughs> he didn't. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. I wish I had not asked that question. And he, he pretty much went the entire. It's like, what's not on? Yeah, exactly. The entire sort of earth circumference of the sun. I was like, okay, all right, all right. And there he was sitting there, surrounded by about three dogs, everyone going mad. Just sort of, it's an attachment to not just to the birds, but to animals, to new life coming through and seeing it and watching it. And it's messy old business. And I don't think we like being messy anymore. We don't like being dirty or... No, and the idea of reconnecting with nature, somehow it's going to be utopian. We're all going to sort of be floating on a cloud and all the rest of it. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But having that connection with natural systems is really important. It's a grounding element. And I've said it before, the idea of when you go into the wilderness, for example, how it makes you feel small. If you're in the middle of the ocean, this huge expanse of water and you're just a tiny floating head puts you in your place and being in a desert puts you in your place. And I think that's really important. You know, the idea of knowing where you fit, how it all works together, really important. And farmers are, you know, farming's changed massively where there's new technology, often arable farmers I know are in the tractor most of the day, they haven't necessarily got their hands in the soil like their ancestors would have done. But I think that the farmers, you know, farming communities still have, they know the importance of the changing seasons and those indicators of what's happening and seeing the sort of the wildflowers coming up in the woodland, knowing spring is on its way, all those things are little things that everyone can pick up on. All you've got to do though is just look. And I think that's where your book is really inspirational. It takes you through your emotional journey, but at the same time, picking up the bits of knowledge, going, wow, that's fascinating, the aspects of birds' biology that interwoven into someone's life, not saying, right, this is what you need, binoculars, tripod, da 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 there's this nature reserve. It's not about that. And that's putting nature into people's everyday life is really important. 
and we should see it as part of our life as opposed to it's not something I go and look at if I go on a safari or go on a bird spotting trip or whatever else. Well, this is it. This idea that we have to dress in a certain way, go abroad, do this to go and see it, when actually all you have to do is go out the door. I mean, if it's the winter, I don't know why wrens have popped into my head. Wrens in the wintertime, whilst fiercely competitive in the summer, they get together because they're so tiny and little and they all freeze to death. So they huddle together, 10 or 12 wrens, or hide under a, a slate or in a hole in the wall or something. And you can sometimes discover these wrens. I found one in an old house martin's nest the other day. About 10 wrens came out in the middle of winter, you know, and this idea of coming together, you know, it's also a metaphor for life. But there's so much that nature can teach us as well that I try and get across in the book. I think the record is 69 wrens in a post box they found once. But people don't know these little facts, these little nuggets. There's so much characterful stuff going on all around us. Yeah, it's a funny old question. What was your favourite bird? What bird really turns you on and why? I get asked this question. I always have a different answer every time. I would say, I'll sound like a politician now, not give you a straight answer. I would say that at different times of the year, I love different birds. So, (laughs) for example, in sort of January or February, it's the song thrush for me because... They're the first birds really to start singing properly. You know, they really open up in the darkest moment when it's those long nights. There's two ways you can take a song thrush. I was singing at five in the morning when you want to go to sleep. One is to lob a brick at it. And the other is to sort of actually get involved and let that song roll over you. I think it was Thomas Hardy who said in the darkling thrush, you know, some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. And you just think about that. And that's the first sign of the season. But there's a robin I'm watching right outside the window of the seasons changing and the joy it gives you once you've tuned in. So the song thrush, I always, you know, I love it so much. The skylark this time of year coming into spring, hearing the skylark sing in an open field. There is kind of nothing like that. That's like going to a live Led Zeppelin concert, the feeling you get for me. But, you know, this is, a, this is what I try and get across the book, is that each one gives me so much joy and people roll their eyes. But once you've tuned in, I get this for free. You know? <laughs> and while I still have a stressful life, while I still get sad, you know, I get this all around me for free that I can watch when I walk down to the creek I'm near the sea right now, West Wittering, we're on a little mini break, and I can walk down there, there's a little nature reserve down there, and it's full of oyster catchers, I heard a curlew this morning, they should be flying off quite soon to breed in the hills, but there's a curlew, there's oyster catchers everywhere, I can see there's white throats arriving, you know, all this is happening, it's like a busy city down there, and if I didn't know that, and 10 years ago I didn't, I would have just walked to the beach. Yeah, you see, but people pay for streaming services to watch nature on television. Like you say, it's all free outside. Everyone has their favourites. And I, a lot of the birds you were talking about are very romantic birds and, you know, that are beautiful. I quite like, as a couple, and they tend to be seen as pest species. So I always think like wood pigeons. Wood pigeons are everywhere. And a bit of a pain on the old fields. You just see them eating. You see them en masse. But there's something about them. They're quite laid back. And the fact that if you see them on the road and you're driving towards them, they always wait for the very last moment to take off. If I see a car coming, I think, oh, I better cross quickly or get out of the way. But a wood pigeon's like, no, just give it a little bit longer. I'm not really going to waste the energy to last minute. And the other one is the rook, which I find infuriating, but also really quite funny. And the fact that I'll put a load of seedlings out and the rooks are flying around the farm, they're eating on the pig food that's on the ground, all this kind of stuff. But they'll see me plant out a new veg patch. And then as I walk back and go into the restaurant on the farm, whatever, look out the window, I can see them just plucking out the seedlings. 
but they're not eating them. Just pull them out and drop them on the ground. Pull them out. And they're almost going, watch this, lads. He'll be out again in two hours, planting some more. <laughs> yeah. But there's that. These birds, as well as being beautiful, have incredible characters, don't they? Well, rooks particularly, you know, rookeries are a source of endless fascination. They have these sort of very strict codes of conduct about where you can nest, you know, what height. And rooks are fascinating, their communities. And, I mean, there is a story that they're called a parliament of rooks is a collective noun because, or one of the collective nouns, because, you know, rooks put each other to death. There's stories in ancient times of, you know, people saying circles of rooks around a singular rook in the middle that has broken some rook law or other that will get pecked to death, you know. And I think with the others, you know, they're far more complex than we really truly understand. You know, we don't understand so much about the birds. I mean, other favourites, of course, are house martins, because we always had house martins nesting in our eaves, and, you know, I love that the mystery of a house martin is that how the hell does it know to get from... We don't even know where they go, by the way, in the Congo Basin. We haven't found out. But how do they get from there to exactly where they were born every year? To the same place. I mean, I can't get to Tesco's in Devizes without Satnav after going there 55 times. And yet these birds can travel... 4,000 miles. And how? I mean, just how? They're so tiny. And that, for me, is a source of daily wonder and inspiration. It's fascinating. I'm glad you've got such a bad memory like me, then. I don't feel so bad. (laughs) 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 When I see your devices going round and round the roundabout, I'll be like, you still can't find Tesco's. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Charlie, it has been absolutely fascinating. And thank you for talking to me. It's been brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jimmy. I've really, really enjoyed our talk. It's really made my morning. Take care. Thanks so much. You take care. Well, welcome back, folks. How good is Charlie? I tell you what, get out there, get bird spotting, get yourself a bird table, put some seed on. That's a great way to see what birds you've got in the garden. Don't have to go out into the countryside. Urban birds are amazing, just as much as countryside birds are. You just get involved. And once you start looking, you'll be amazed what birds you see. Now, my zebra and my eland are getting on like they've been family all their life. Look at them, just loving it, munching on that grass. So listen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please like, subscribe, leave a comment wherever you find your podcasts because it really does help new listeners find us. And I'll see you all again for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.